0: So last week, if you were here, we took a look under the hood of a local church. We spent some time together uh, trying to discuss why local churches exist. Uh, We talked a little bit about our covenant specifically here at True North, uh, why we covenant together, the purpose of a church and how we want to accomplish that church here specifically at our local church. And then we wrapped up our time together by looking at the two offices of the church. So I'm going to talk just a little bit about that as we move through our sermon today. I just want you to know if you feel sort of lost, uh, that's all available online too. You can go back and look at that, especially if you're new and you want to kind of understand the structure here and the polity. We spent some time together. We spent about half an hour last week discussing that and trying to make sure that we were all on the same page. Prior to that, you may recall, if you were here, we spent about six weeks in the book of Mark. We started a series in Mark that's going to take us, we think, the better part of about three years. We're going to be looking at six to eight weeks of Mark, followed by a discipline, followed by Mark again, followed by a discipline, just so you know where we're headed. Uh, And we'll be going back there beginning on November 6th, the first Sunday in November. We'll be back in Mark chapter 1. But today, we turn a corner together. We arrive at a place that we have been working toward, uh, at least as far as your church leaders go. We've been working on this for about 18 months. Uh, You may recall, if you were here, back in the month of March of this year, that we began a 10-part series that took us about two and a half months that we called The Way of Jesus. And our objective in that um, series was to try to solve a problem. The problem that motivated us to reevaluate what we call discipleship was this specifically, that for many of us... When we meet Jesus, we are almost always taught how to avoid sin, but we are almost never taught how to actually follow Jesus. So we called that negative discipleship, the idea that uh, for many of us our experience of becoming a Christian has meant simply that we remove a lot of stuff from our lives and we try as hard as we can to, to keep that stuff from coming back in, the old habits, the old mindset, the old ways. But unfortunately, many of us just haven't been discipled in a way where we've been given more than we started with where we've been taught practices, habits, rhythms, routines that actually work to counteract those old ways, that give us a a fighting chance to actually live a different lifestyle than the one that we live naturally. Now, why that's a problem is a little bit of a surprise to me because I think that many churches, on their websites at least, Uh, list a Sunday night service, a Sunday morning service, a Wednesday night service. They might also have something on a Tuesday or a Thursday. There's probably a band rehearsal. They might have a choir that has to get together and sing. There could potentially be service opportunities another day of the week. I know for me, the church that I grew up at in Northeast Texas, there were things to do six days a week at the church if you really wanted to be really committed. And you would hear that kind of language from the pulpit, from the stage, from other church leaders. But it seemed like there was still this disconnection where people's lives were maybe becoming in a way less worldly, you could argue, but they weren't necessarily becoming more Christ-like. This is surprising also based on how many multi-million dollar businesses exist to produce and sell you Christian books. Every year, you may not know this, hundreds of books are licensed and printed and sent out into the wild at christianbook.com or lifeway.com or amazon.com. All attempting to give you something that you're supposedly looking for and yet many of us sit here today in our 30s or 40s or 50s and we might say that our experience so far has only been the removal of a handful of really bad sins and maybe not the addition of a whole lot else. Maybe some Bible reading, which is good and right. Maybe a quiet time, which is good and right. Maybe some community in a life group, which is good and right. But past that point, it feels a little bit foggy for us. We're not exactly sure where to go. We wouldn't even know who to ask about where to take us because when we look around, we don't see a lot of people who seem to be living a radically different lifestyle than the one that we live without Jesus. This problem is also surprising if we simply take Jesus' teaching at his word. If we look at what Jesus taught, if we look at the way that he lived and the transformation that's immediately evident in the life of his 12 apprentices, it's a little bit hard to understand how we could be doing this Christianity thing for so long, many of us, and still not really know if what we're doing is working or helping or getting us to where we want to be. We said in March, and I think this is more true today than it ever has been, that churches often know how to give people knowledge. In fact, many churches are really only good at that. All they know how to do is teach you facts, expose you to history, lay out theology and doctrine in front of you, probably things that weren't even on your radar before you got involved with a church. Many churches know how to defend the validity of the Bible, which is good. They know how to persuade people into maybe praying a bit more, or at least into feeling bad that they don't. Maybe you've had that experience. But it's a tough sell for us to look, really look, at Western modern churches in general and come away believing that they know how to teach people to actually do the things that Jesus actually said to do. So here's the rub. The rub is if that's a problem for you and I, something is seriously wrong because that's supposedly the whole point for us. The point has never been to acquire knowledge, to build massive storehouses of ancient understandings of church history, to be able to defend creeds and confessions, doctrines and theologies. Those things are good and right, but they are not themselves the motor or the engine of a Christian life. They were not the motor nor the engine for Jesus' life, and he is our example. So we ought to ask ourselves, if there is a disconnect there, what can we do something about it? In March, we started to try to answer this question, okay? We said that we needed to begin with Jesus. If he himself is a rabbi, what does that even mean? I'm not gonna re-preach that sermon now, but I will tell you that we tried to look at him first and foremost as a rabbi to his own apprentices and then understanding that his command to them when he ascended to heaven was for they themselves to become rabbis and to go and create Uh, disciples, or what we would call apprentices today, uh, and that that cycle would repeat itself. But it all has to start with Jesus. He's the first domino, if you will, to fall, and all the other dominoes follow after him. So we defined these ideas, these five factors that are always working on us, that are essentially working against the will of God and against the kingdom of God in our midst. We called this, if you may remember, static spiritual formation. So I want to show you those five factors just really quick. And again, I don't have the time to to plumb to the depths of this. We spent 10 weeks on this. It was really fun for me in the spring. Uh, All of that is on our website. I encourage you to go back, look for the series called The Way of Jesus, maybe listen back through those things. We spent a long time laying a foundation on where we are going to begin to move today. The five things that work on us, whether we like it or not, are first, the stories that we believe. We said uh, in March that uh, for ancient peoples, they learned life lessons and morals, how to be a dad, how to be a a husband, how to work hard from people like Zeus and Hera and Poseidon. For you and I, we tend to learn those lessons from uh, Hagrid and Peter Parker and Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? These are our big myths that we love. We wear t-shirts. We have it on the bumper sticker of our car. We dress our kids up as these things at Halloween. It's very similar to the way that the pantheons functioned in the ancient world. So these stories play a role in the way that we understand good and evil, right and wrong. The routines that we live, the unthinking subconscious rhythms of our lives shape us. The relationships that we have, the people who we spend time with play a massive role in helping us decide the future, who we are becoming. Our environment, both physical, spiritual, emotional, the things that sort of happen around us, what we are immersed in, and then finally our experiences. Everything from our family of origin through any trauma that we may have endured, Uh, breakups that we've had, if we've lived through a divorce, if we've dealt with addiction, if we've had a parent or a brother or sister who has carried that kind of burden, these things change and shape the way that we view the world. They may make us in some ways more hopeful. They may make us probably often, so this is the case, more cynical, more hardened, more guarded. But these are the things that work on us. And here's the bottom line. Even if you would say that you can't think of one thing that's happened to you in the last year that you would call formative, maybe that feels like too academic or formal language to you, you are being formed by those five things every day. All you have to do is wake up tomorrow and these five things are working on you, whether you think about it, whether you want them to, whether you choose to participate in them or not. Now, thankfully for you and I, there's a dynamic set of factors that we can choose to participate in. We can do five other things that don't just sort of balance the scales but actually counteract the static factors of formation for us. These dynamic factors actually counteract them in a way that we can, to quote Paul in Ephesians 4, attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Here are those five factors. These are the good five. The first is teaching, and teaching stands diametrically opposed to stories. The stories are the kinds of things that we pick up on, that we absorb in movies and books and on the playground as a kid and when we're in college. The teaching of Jesus, the teaching of the Bible is something that we choose to involve ourselves in, to counteract, to run counter to the course of the stories that our world tells us. This is a large part of why we plan to be in the Gospel of Mark for as long as we do. Three years in Mark is an investment in teaching that's designed to run counter to the stories that are forming us. Second is practice. Practice stands opposed to routine, whereas routine is unthinking, subconscious, automatic, you might even call it habit. Practice is choosing to participate in something to help retrain our instincts, our knee-jerk reactions. If I'm an angry person, trying not to be angry isn't gonna work. It's just gonna make me angry at me, and now I'm angry at everybody, and that's not any better. But finding ways to incorporate and integrate more peaceful rhythms, more exposure to what's true from God's word. These are the kinds of things that will change you and I, that will form us. Community stands opposed to relationships. This is why we believe that life group is so important. It's part of why we require life group involvement for membership. The Spirit of God stands opposed to our physical environment. You may recall that we talked at length about Brother Lawrence of the cross and how he felt, or excuse me, of the resurrection, and how he felt that he found a way to practice the presence of God everywhere that he went that he could be in the kitchen and in the Father's presence, that he could be in the car waiting to pick up his kids and in the Father's presence, that he could be uh, doing dishes, serving food, working on the grounds, fixing a hole in the roof, all of those things, and still be in the Father's presence. And that's what we're looking for, that's what Jesus is driving at in John 14 and 15 when he describes the Spirit of God coming after him, another of the same kind, a a vine in which we can abide, similar to how Jesus' disciples uh, abode in him. And then finally, spiritual realities as opposed to our experiences. Um, Having worked through the beginning of the book of Mark in the last six weeks, I felt it necessary to add the word kingdom to sort of the way we think about that. This is our admission and participation in that the kingdom of God has actually come, that it's very close by, it's available to anybody who wants to be a part of it, and that it changes the rules of what it means to be a human being. The bottom line is this, a few hours of study and knowledge each week at a church service, these things are not enough to form you and I when we carry around the world in our pockets. I've said this to you before, but I wanna remind you, in 2007, we entered a new age worldwide, the digital age. And the digital age began in part because the iPhone came out that year. It's also the year that Facebook went from being private to college students only to where anybody with an email address could sign up. It's also the year that Twitter uh, was established. It's the year that uh, I think IBM switched to silicon chips where we now can buy a micro SD card that has two terabytes of data storage on it. The, the rate at which our technological advancements have been able to accelerate in the last 15 years is unprecedented in human history. And if you think that's not making a difference in your life, you're wrong if you're not aware of the effect that that has on you as a person who was not necessarily designed to ever interact with anything that had to be plugged into charge at night, not saying that it's bad, just saying that it does something to us. It does something to our spirit. I'm not just talking about Bluetooth signals in our brains. I'm saying to you that it forms you differently to have the ability in every situation, some of you even right now while I'm speaking to you, to be mindlessly scrolling information that you would never have access to. That changes us. So we need something that's a little bit more powerful than 90 to 120 minutes a week of Bible study. We need some kind of process that we really think can contend with a world that is forming us at a rate that human beings have never experienced before. We need the whole philosophy of spiritual formation if we want to stand a chance at actually following Jesus. Now I know this because I know that Jesus was not just a teacher. He was a rabbi, yes a master of his craft, which for him was life transformation. But Jesus did not just teach his apprentices with words and stories. He also showed them how to do what he did. At several points in the ministry, he sent his disciples, his apprentices, away from him and said, go and do the things that I've shown you. Take a couple of days, come back, and then we'll debrief together. We'll have a little bit of like show and tell on how did it go, and what was it like, and was it what you expected? Did you enjoy it? Do you think you could do it again? He sent them out to do that. And most importantly, he lived with them. This is the most immersive character training environment that a human being could ever go through, to simply camp out with Jesus for around 1,000 nights in a row. That's what his disciples went through. Now, if you and I want to be like Jesus, which I would argue is the whole reason that the church exists, right? We said that last week, to uphold and defend the truth of the way of Jesus. If we want to do that, then we have to be with him. We have to find a way to be immersed in his life so that we don't just learn to mimic him in a few very specific situations, but we actually become like him in character. That's the point. The point is to become the kind of person that when we walk through our lives, other people who rub shoulders with us go, I think that person may have been with Jesus. Now, maybe not everybody in your life has the language to be able to say that, but we want to be the kinds of folks who bring the kingdom of God with us everywhere that we go. Today is about us learning to do that, As I said earlier, we'll be back on a teaching emphasis in November, but between now and then, we're going to navigate through our first practice together. This is it. And I feel a little bit silly even making this such a point of emphasis, but I know because you've told me that some of you have been waiting for what feels like too long for me to hurry up and actually teach you how to do the kinds of things that we've been talking about all this time. So this is, that's what I intend to do. We're going to begin today, spiritual practice number one, silence and solitude you're going, hold on a second, right out of the gate, you're giving me two for one? Yes. They go together. They're one practice. They're hard to do without. We'll talk about it in just a minute. But that is the idea. This is one practice for you and I, silence and solitude. And this practice is going to take us five weeks to work through. We're going to have a teaching every Sunday, starting today through the end of October, every Sunday morning. And this is going to be accompanied by an additional short teaching, which will be very practical that we're going to put up on our website by Wednesday of each of these five weeks. So we're going to have a chance to get a little bit practical at the end of today, but this is still a preaching environment where most of my responsibility is to herald Jesus to you and point to him and tell you who he is and what he's done, which is good and right. During the week, I'll be able to share just a little bit more, something like 15 minutes of practical steps you can take, some of my experience navigating this, and we'll make that freely available to you. And then we're going to ask you to be chewing on these things together in life group. So we've asked our life groups, to give them fair warning over a year ago that this was coming. We've asked them to kind of pull back from their own individual studies of books of the Bible or the DVD series they've been doing or the book studies they've been doing in Christian living. All of that's good and right, but we're trying to get back on the same page for the sake of this. The idea would be you get your lecture on Sunday morning, you sort of get your cliff notes during the week, and then your laboratory time happens with your community. I don't believe that simply logging on the internet, typing in, how do I practice silence and solitude, reading three or four blog posts, and then going for it, is God's will for your life. I don't think the point is to try to find a way to bolt on more Christian stuff. So I wanna say that to you. If that's all this is for you, you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it alone. You shouldn't just do it for your own sake. You should do it with other people in an environment that matches the method of Jesus. You should go out, maybe you can go in pairs, that's okay, that's how Jesus did it, but you have to come back. You can't just go out, get discouraged, and stay out. You gotta come back. Talk about it, how did it go? Highs and lows, not that great, didn't enjoy it, didn't do anything for me, felt silly, felt embarrassed, whatever, maybe you'll love it, I hope you do, but I bet a lot of you are gonna be skeptical initially, and that's okay, that's okay. But we wanna follow the model that Jesus gave his disciples because that's who we are, we're his disciples, and we believe that this will work. So before we jump into it fully, I wanna give you a little bit of recommended reading. If this is not your thing, just ignore it, tune me out. I'm gonna take 30 seconds and just run this by you. These are some books that would help you if you wanna add something to this. Maybe you're going, I'm already overwhelmed, I don't even know if I'm gonna participate in this, that's fine, but if you're like me and you're hungry and you love to read and ingest, here are some resources that would help you. The best book on silence and solitude that I have read is called Invitation to Solitude and Silence by Ruth Haley Barton. It's extremely readable, it is not academic. Uh, If some of you have taken a bite out of Dallas Willard at my recommendation and been discouraged because it got stuck in your throat and you couldn't know what to do with it, that's not Ruth. Ruth is awesome. She's easy to read. She's super honest and very direct. Uh, I would recommend a couple of chapters from Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. His chapter on meditation deals with silence a little bit, and then he has a chapter as well that deals with solitude. And then another book by Dallas Willard, The Spirit of the Disciplines, and of course he has to title his chapter with like 15 words. Some main disciplines for the spiritual life, chapter nine, uh, would be a helpful read to you where he goes through silence, he goes through solitude and gives some key thoughts about those things. Um, If you want to follow up on any of those, feel free to take a picture, whatever. If you don't care, that's also totally fine. I just wanted to make sure you knew where I was sourcing a lot of what I'm telling you today. So... We're going to start with a little bit of self-evaluation. Here's what I mean. I'm going to pray for us. You're probably like, we've already prayed like three times today. That's awesome. We can pray a hundred times. God doesn't get sick of hearing from us. It's going to be good. But before we dive all the way in, and in the interest of starting to apply what we're talking about today just a little bit, I'm going to do something, and this is from chapter two of Richard Foster's book. Uh, It's called Centering Down. You don't have to do it. You don't need to do it necessarily. I'm just gonna explain it to you. It's been a help to me across the last couple of years as I pray. Um, I'm gonna pray through this either way. You're welcome to sit there totally still. Nobody's watching, nobody's gonna put your name on some weird list. If you do this or don't do this, I just think this is about getting practical, so I'd like to start in a very practical place. What I do, this is what centering down means. When we come before God in prayer, Physically, we do something. So I'm very incarnate. I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram. I'm a type eight, so I'm just where I am. I'm fully there. I'm passionate. I'm like a a live wire that needs to be plugged into something, okay? And so it helps me to bring my body with me into prayer, to not just try to sit bone still and force my spirit and mind to engage. So centering down starts like this. You take your hands and you put your palms face down and you clench them because whether you like it or not, you're carrying something today. You're holding on to something. Something is bothering you. Something is worrying you. Someone is making you nervous. There's a decision coming, and it's eating your lunch, and you don't know what to do. So we're just going to admit that with our hands. Again, you don't have to do anything here at all. It's totally up to you. But you do that, and then as you pray, you're going to name those things to God. You're going to say, God, I'm distracted by this thing. I'm frustrated. I'm paranoid. I'm angry. And as you feel like you confess those things to God, you can let them go. You don't have to throw them down, you have to waver, whatever, you can do that if you want to, it's fine. I usually just do this, I just let my hands open, okay? And then once I feel that I have admitted to God what he already knows to be true, that I'm carrying something significant, I just flip my hands over and I say to him, now I'm ready to receive whatever it is that you have for me. I'm here, I'm listening, I'm prepared, I've acknowledged what's bugging me, it's not eating at the back of my mind, it's not that thing where you have a conversation and somebody's just watching your lips move so that as soon as you stop, they can jump in. I think sometimes we do that with God, we're just like, "Is okay, I just gotta just dump everything on him and then run away, like, we wanna just sit and listen and wait, and so I'm gonna do that physically as I pray, we're gonna bow our heads and close our eyes just like we normally do, if you wanna participate, you're welcome to, you don't have to, again, I just wanna be as practical as we can be, so let's pray together as we come to the Lord. Father, we're here and we're in your presence. We know that we are. We know that you go with us everywhere that we go, but there is something uniquely important you say about us gathering together. And so we're here gathered together, God, and that means we have a whole lot of junk in the room with us. We have a lot of fear. We have some concerns about tomorrow, this week, next month, Our relationships, God, are grating on our nerves. Our workplace has gotten stressful. What we're going to do about money, whether we save or spend, the giant PFD probably has caused some conflict in our home. There's just a lot going on, God. Many of us have been sick more than we're used to. Many of our children have been sick. A lot of our kids are struggling, God, as they try to deal with the effects of a weird year from COVID at school. Uh, We're in a new building. Some of us love it. Some of us aren't sure yet. We see a lot of new faces. Maybe that makes us nervous or excited or anxious. God, I pray that whatever it is that's on our mind that isn't you, that you'd allow us to let go of it. We confess to you that we want to do that. We want to be about you. We release it as best we know how, knowing that it's probably gonna come right back. We trust you, God. We're gonna do our best in this moment to trust you, and we're gonna say to you that we're here. We're here to listen. We're here to consider, we're here to be open, not to be brainwashed, God, not to be forced to do a thing that we're not ready for, but to simply look at your life and try to learn from you. So we love you, we pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so here's the big question. What is silence and solitude? And yes, that is the right grammatical way to ask that question because they function together as one unit, so don't email me about that. I want to share with you quickly three quotes that helped me. Okay, so 18 months ago at the beginning of 2021, I guess it's been more than 18 now, but at the beginning of 2021, one of my goals for myself was to try to restore the spirituality to my Christianity. My Christianity felt like it was robotic. It was mostly empty. I had a lot of good answers. I didn't have really any kind of connection with God internally that, to speak of. I knew how to do the right things, come to the church, do my small group, read my Bible, and none of it was fake. It just wasn't satisfying me. And so I thought, let's find out. There seem to have been a lot of people in the world, in human history, who have found something in God that makes them just crazy obsessed with him. And I'm not sure I'm totally there yet. So I engaged with lots of these practices, started with silence and solitude, just like we are. And here's a handful of quotes that really helped me. The first is from Ruth Haley Barton's book. She says this, silence and solitude are not self-indulgent exercises for times when an overcrowded soul needs a little time to itself. Rather, they are concrete ways of opening to the presence of God beyond human effort. Now, what does that mean? That means that sometimes we try so hard to connect with God that we don't connect with God, okay? She says it goes beyond that. It goes beyond even the human constructs that cannot fully contain the divine. In other words, there's something about simply sitting with God quiet and away from everybody who needs you, who yanks on your shirt sleeve all day and sends you notifications on your phone, there's something about being away from that that lets you just be open to see what in the world is God gonna do? And who is he? What's he like that you've never experienced before? My takeaway from that is that this practice is not just a day off for you. This is so interesting to me. Both this practice and the practice of Sabbath, when I've had the chance to coach different people about how do they begin to integrate some disciplines or some practices into their life, it seems like they kind of just want their normal Saturday to be good enough. And they go, well, I didn't go to the office that day. Well, how many work emails did you check? A hundred. Okay, that's probably still a work day for you, right? That whole like post-COVID thing where we all work all the time has definitely infected most of us. And so it's not just a day off. And it's not about emptying myself like some Eastern religious tradition or even sort of the European monastic tradition in the early one to 2,000s of the church history, or the, I mean 1,000 to 1,200 of church history. The biggest clue for me in that quote was the idea that I wasn't meant to practice silence and solitude in order to relieve stress, in order to unwind, to recharge, to get away from responsibility. This isn't yoga, okay? This isn't uh, mindfulness, secular mindfulness. This is uniquely different than simply escaping from the things that stress me out. So this is a principle for you. If you wanna write down this, I think it'll help you get an idea of what we're dealing with here. Silence and solitude are more than Christian solutions to overstimulation. So we're not just here to appraise whether or not we could use a quiet day once a week. That's not what this is about. This is about an intentional practice that's not void of meaning, that's not about separating myself so I can just be quiet. It's full of meaning. I still have to create space. I still have to find a spot to physically do this. I have to find time in my schedule, which you may already be telling yourself this is impossible. We're gonna get there, I promise. I'm gonna try to help you figure out how to squeeze this in. It is hard, but we can do it. But it's not just about escaping overstimulation. We ought not use a practice of Jesus as sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card when and where we wanna wave it to justify doing a thing that we just wanna do. That's not the point. Okay, quote number two. This one is specifically about solitude. Okay, this is Dallas Willard this time. You knew it was coming. Here it is. He says... To get out of human contact is not something that can be done in a short while, for that contact lingers long after it is in one sense over. What does that mean? Dallas is explaining the after image of human contact. So maybe you don't know what that means. I'm sure you've had this experience before. Anybody when they were a kid liked to look at the sun? Are you willing to be honest? I know you're like, oh, my wife's here. I didn't want her to know that. But yeah, it explains a few things. I know, me too. We did it on the playground. We would do that, and we would see who could keep their hand in an ant pile the longest. Not a good idea. Yeah, not a good idea. Don't do that. But the sun thing. You look at the sun, or somebody drives behind you in the winter with halogen headlights, right, and they burn into your eyeballs. You know what I'm talking about. You look at a light, and then you look away, and you have that floating after image, right? That's the way that human contact is. Maybe you didn't know that. When you are with people, especially if most of your people are under the age of 15, you can't just walk into the next room and instantly find nirvana waiting for you at the sink, right, or in the bedroom. It takes time, just like that after image of looking at the sun or those bright headlights takes time to fade away. It actually takes time for the after image of other people to fade away from your spirit and mind. You can't just snap your fingers, close your eyes, cross your legs, and begin to hum. It's not going to work that way. Part of the investment of solitude is finding enough time to let that after image fade. We can't experience solitude 10 seconds after we drop the kids off at school or 30 seconds after our conference call ends at work. It takes time still and alone, time to sit long enough for the after image to fade away so that you can be alone with yourself and with God. So here's a concept for you that you might write down. Solitude is about allowing the after image of human contact to fade. That's what we want. We don't just want to go sit on a rock for 10 minutes and go, bingo, check that off the list. You're welcome, God. We want to be in a spot where the way that we experience ourselves changes a little bit. We breathe. We take a second, we let our mind kind of catch up and and freak out. In the first two chapters of Ruth Haley Barton's book, she talks about how every time she goes into solitude, even if it's just for 10 minutes, she brings a piece of paper with her and she spends like the first three minutes just writing. Everything that comes to mind, the grocery list, the appointments, the people she needs to call back, the stuff she's worried about. And then she folds it up, she sets it next to her and she doesn't look at it again until the 10 minutes are over. But there's a little bit of that practice that we have to engage with. We have to find a way to actually jettison the things that have become burdens on our souls before we can sit quietly with God. Now, last quote, and this one's a little bit longer, but I think it's going to help you. It starts by explaining what silence does for us, and then it addresses silence and solitude together as a single practice. And it is from Dallas again, so sorry about that. Here's what he says. He says, silence means to escape from sounds and from noises other than the gentle ones of nature but it also means not talking, and it means the effects of not talking, excuse me, and the effects of not talking on our soul are different from those of simple quietness. So there's silence that's getting away from external noise, and there's the self-silencing of turning off that constant inner monologue that's anxious and worried and nervous and scared and afraid. It's both of those things. Both dimensions of silence are crucial for the breaking of old habits and for the formation of of Christ's character in us. This is why we're starting with this practice. We don't just need, to echo myself 10 minutes ago, we don't just need to bolt new Christian practices onto our lives, we've got to clear some space. There are things going on in you psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually that you can actually engage with, but you'll never engage with them by just attacking them with more of your type A personality. The way that you'll engage with them, and this is often true of the way of Jesus, is actually by disengaging with them. That's how you'll begin to work on those things, is you'll pull back and you'll give yourself the time that you need to interact with that. So another idea for you is that silence brings our subconscious inner monologue to the surface so that we can deal with it. Lots and lots, and I don't have time to give you all the quotes, but many people in church history who have practiced silence and solitude have said something like that it is being alone in solitude that lets us be our true self. It strips away everything else, all the mask wearing, because you can lie to everybody else, but you can't lie to you. You know who you are. You know what you're really dealing with. And as we sit with those things, we find ways to interact with them. Okay, final part of the quote. He says, Silence and solitude give us some space to reform our inmost attitudes toward people and events. They take the world off our shoulders for a time, and they interrupt our habit, catch this, of constantly managing things, of being in control or thinking we are, which is the most true. One of the greatest spiritual attainments is the capacity to do nothing, and I love you guys, but some of you do not have that capacity. The one thing you can't do is nothing. You don't know how. You can't stop. You have to keep going. If you sit still, there is something going on between your ears that you don't like and that you don't want to interact with. The objective is not for you to psychoanalyze yourself and fix all your problems. Please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. The objective is to sit with who you are, God already knows, he's not surprised, and sit with God. And just let those two things coexist side by side, without the white noise, without the box fan, without the traffic, without the music, without the TV show, without the news, without the podcast. Just sit with those two things, let them coexist, and see what happens. In a perfect world without sin, that's human life. That's the thing that we've all wanted to get back to, as long as we've known. It's the thing your heart is aching to do, but it's the thing your mind tells you you could never do. You could never justify it. You could never make time. It would never be okay. It's immoral for a person like you with as many resources as you have and as built out as a schedule as you live with to ever take this kind of time. It's selfish, it's silly, it's hyper-spiritual, and it won't make a difference. And those are four lies from God's enemy that are not true. It is worth your time. It is helpful to you. If you're like me, the idea of nothing gives you just the faintest flutters of a baby panic attack, right? (laughs) here it comes. How can we justify such a thing? What about my kids? What about my marriage? What about work? What about my wind-down time at night before bed? What about uh, in the mornings I wake up, I have my coffee, I check the news, I start on email. How can I disrupt those things? It feels like I am living so edge-to-edge in my life without margin that I could never do this. Here is a concept for you, my friends. If you are too busy for silence and solitude, you desperately need it desperately. It's the easiest way to know whether this would be an effective addition to your spiritual life or not. If you cannot imagine taking the time to do this, that is all the proof you need that you are already sick, habitually, the way that you're living in a way that this would help correct. It would help you or I wouldn't take the time to try to impress this upon you. And as far as how we navigate those things, we're gonna get there. This is why we have five weeks coming, okay? The point of today is not to get all the way from zero to 100. It's just to introduce these ideas, try to pique your interest, get you thinking. We're gonna do a little experiment at the end today. I'm gonna try to get you started on this. But we're gonna deal with that stuff. What do you do if you're busy? What do you do if all your kids are under eight years old and they're all at home and they're all hungry at the same time and they never sleep and they're perpetually sick? How can you ever have silence in your life? We will talk about how to do that together, okay? I just want you to grasp what we mean when we say silence and solitude. So, so far today, you've sort of heard from the philosophical experts. You've heard from the people who've done the best writing on this and try to help people like you and me begin to practice it. But if that's all I had for you, then you should leave and you should never come back to this church. If this is just a big self-help seminar, it's a waste of your time. What I wanna do now with the remainder of our time is look at the life of Jesus. And what I hope will happen is as we read through just a handful of passages of scripture from the Bible, you'll get this idea that Jesus was practicing silence and solitude all the time and you probably never noticed. So we'll start in Matthew chapter three. I'm gonna begin reading in verse 16 of Matthew three. We'll have it for you on the screens. And we're gonna read through verse four of chapter four because Jesus didn't just teach this, he lived it. Here we go. When Jesus was baptized, Immediately, right away, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, on Jesus. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Just a really beautiful Trinitarian moment in the New Testament. Father, Son, Spirit, all there together, all working together. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil, God's enemy. God's enemy. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If, if you can just look back at verse 1 of chapter 4, there is a word there, wilderness. The Greek word is eremos. Eremos, eremos it can mean lots of different things. It can mean the desert, implying sand and scrubby trees. It can mean a deserted place, a place that used to be civilized and a abandoned village. A, an old rundown mill would be considered something like that. Uh, if you've ever been to Whittier, there's a whole big like, skyscraper building that nobody lives in, that's a desolate place. Uh, it can also mean a solitary place. It can mean a deserted place. It can mean a lonely place. Here's the concept, and if you were here when we preached this uh, about a month ago, you heard me say it, but I want to say it again to you. Jesus did not practice solitude in a desolate place in order to weaken himself and somehow create like a level playing field for God and the devil, for him to be tempted. Jesus was empowered. He centered the human part of himself by being in a lonely place with God the Father for 40 days, away from the noise, away from the busyness, away from the crowds of ministry. Jesus was not at his weakest in solitude. He was at his strongest. Now, if you're able, go to the right in your Bible, 11 chapters. If you have a Bible with you today, if not, again, we'll have it on the screen. But I want you to see in Matthew 14, we're getting closer now to kind of the midpoint of Jesus' three years of ministry. Looking specifically at verse 24, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. You heard Tyler read that earlier this morning, which according to Mark's account of the story only happens, this is so interesting, Because Jesus had just sent his apprentices away to a desolate place. The whole reason these 5,000 people swarm Jesus is because he's walking solo in the hills. He's trying to teach his apprentices to go and practice solitude and silence, to go be with the Father by themselves. And he gets caught. He gets kind of cornered against the ocean uh, up on this hillside. And so he begins to teach these people. They end up feeding everybody together. Uh, Look at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. These are the 12 and go before him to the other side of the body of water that he had been backed up against, while he himself dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, a desolate place, a lonely place. Jesus went to be by himself. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So Jesus sent away the crowds of people who were looking for him. These were the people who wanted him to disciple them. You probably had that conversation, right? A new person joins your life group. You share something really profound about your Bible reading or your prayer life or your relationship with your spouse. And they call you the next week. And they say, man, I really want to get coffee. What would Christians do without coffee, right? We would just, the churches would close. I don't know. They want to get coffee. Maybe you don't drink coffee, tea is fine, I don't know. But they want to get together, and you guys talk, and you get to know one another. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but you've had this experience where an individual comes to you and says, will you disciple me? And Maybe you haven't had that experience. I certainly have. I think many of you have. But there's this moment sometimes where a person looks at our walk with God, and they go, I want that. The only way I know how to get it is for you to teach me. And that's not a bad request. Jesus has several thousand people around him wanting him to do that. Several thousand people saying, I want what you offer. And he's saying, here's how you get it. And they say, no, I don't want to do it that way. I want it my way. And he says, that's not how it works. And they just follow him anyway around the countryside, not leaving him alone. Jesus is sending away people who want to be healed, people who are still sick at this point. These are the kinds of people to whom Jesus came to preach the gospel of God. What I want you to understand is when Jesus separates himself for silence and solitude, he is saying yes to God the Father. In doing that, he is saying no to the people who need him. I don't know if you know that Jesus did that. Jesus would have been perceived as pretty rude by some of us. Some of us would have gone, I will never go to that church again, because Jesus did not greet me by name, did not come over and find out what my problems were, and when I stood around in line to meet him, at some point he just disappeared and I didn't know where he went. And Jesus doesn't just do this once, it's repeated throughout his ministry. These are the kinds of people for whom many of us in the modern church have massively overextended ourselves in Jesus' name. I'll make another plug for book club, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Pete Scazzaro comes right out of the gates in that book, discussing a moment where he, as a minister, a pastor of a church, put his family in an incredibly compromised position because nobody had ever taught Pete how to tell people no in order to be faithful to the call that God had put on his life. In Matthew 14, the need has not run out yet. This is not one of those instances where the gospel writers tell us that Jesus has healed everybody and it's over. And yet Jesus sends them away so that he can be in solitude again. And more than that, he even sent away his disciples. The kinds of people with whom you and I would want to hang out at the end of a long, hard day. This is his social circle that's supposed to build him up. His friends, his buddies, they're like brothers to him. In some way, they're like sons to him. And he says to them, go across a sea, an inland sea. Can you imagine ever telling your spouse, I want you to cross a body of water. I might see you on the other side. You'd be like, no, I'm not, you're not going anywhere. Give me your phone. I don't know what's going on. We're going to the hospital right now. Jesus is like, you guys need to go over there. And he, he's their rabbi, so they do what he says. You guys need to go over there, and I'll see you sometime. He doesn't tell them when. He, maybe it'll be in the morning, maybe not. If you read the rest of the story, it happens in the middle of the night, and he's walking on the ocean, and they didn't even, he didn't even mean to get seen by them. End up, they're still paddling around looking for him, and they think he's a ghost. Anyway, it doesn't go exactly how he had planned. The point is this. These are the future leaders and planters of Jesus' church. These are the kinds of people that we look for when we are worn thin and exhausted. Jesus took a break even from them in order to find solitude with the Father. In Mark chapter 1, this is my favorite one because Jesus has just completed his first full day of ministry. He's back on the scene after leaving the wilderness. He's only been back for one day. Look what he does. This is Mark one thirty-five. we got it for you on the screens. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon, who's also Peter, and those others who were with him, searched for him, and they found him, and they said, and you can read this in an exasperated voice, there's no punctuation in Greek, but there would be an exclamation point if it was written in English, everybody's looking for you. It's implied, what's wrong with you? Where did you go? You were gone for 40 days, you just called us as your disciples yesterday, and now you're gone again? I mean, I don't know if you've ever processed that timeline before. Jesus had 40 days of solitude, he's back for one day, and he goes right back into solitude again right away. I mean, it's a big day. It's a very long marathon day of ministry. The verses before the ones we read tell us that the entire city of Capernaum, thousands of people had gathered outside the door of the place where he was staying. Jesus knew that if he didn't slip out before the sun came up, he wasn't going to get his chance. Not a major point for you today, but a little principle for you there. You may have to get up early to do this. You may have to find time when nobody else is looking for you or needing you to squeeze this in. Or you may have to stay up late. I would advise that less because it's harder to recover. But maybe you're not a morning person and that's okay. Jesus knew that if he waited until the sun came up, he would never have made it away from the questions and the needs and the attention of this city of people. And they're grown-ups. And the people in your home who need you might not be. They might be even more helpless than these adults were. And still yet, Jesus has to get up early to get away. Now here's what I know. I know that many Christians would never walk away from a crowd of several thousand people who wanted to meet Jesus. They would never be able to comprehend a time where that could ever possibly be appropriate. Even if those Christians could sense that they had personally been out of contact with God the Father for too long, even if they could admit that they needed to get away from the after image of the crowd and somehow address their inner subconscious monologue with God, they would not give themselves permission to do it. But Jesus did it. He didn't just teach it, he did it. Last passage I want to ask you to take a look at is just one verse from Luke chapter four. Again, we'll have it on the screen for you. This is Luke four forty two. When it was day, Jesus departed and went again, there's the word Eremos, into a desolate place, and the people sought Jesus, and they came to him, and if it was up to them, they would have kept him from leaving them. What do you think it was like to be Jesus? to uniquely have the ability among all people who have ever lived to actually meet every need of every person that you ever encounter in your life. The crowd at this point is large, it's loud. Many people are probably crying. They've been moved by the miracles that they've seen Jesus perform across the last few days, hoping maybe that he can be their last and best hope at being healed themselves. I mean, emotions are incredibly high. The energy is electric around Jesus all the time. And Jesus is there at the center of it all. And if I was him, I don't know how I could feel justified to walk away from a crowd like that. That's not a thing that I would ever naturally do. Confession time between you and I. As a pastor, the needs of this community, of this church, of my family, of myself, they never end. They never will end. The same could be said of your household, the same could be said of your workplace. Part of being a human being is always moving to the next thing, the next need, the next thing that needs help. That's fine, but if we can admit that and start there, we have to realize that simply trying to meet all of those needs is a big, giant circle, and it's not a flat circle. It's a circle that spirals down. We have less and less and less resource every time we meet somebody else's needs, and if we don't break that cycle for a minute to come back and recharge, not just to take a spa day, okay, but to be with the Father, to go back into the presence of God and say to God, you are God and I am not, I'm not telling you to just play three more hours of video games a week and call that solitude. I'm saying to you, when you retreat from the felt needs of other people at a point where you can sense that the Spirit of God is leading you to do that, that is the right thing. But you and I are so different from Jesus. We we love to feel wanted, don't we? Even in the church, we want badly to be necessary. I need somebody to need me. We want to be important. We want to feel like our lives matter. We revel in the feeling of being indispensable that comes along with being the only person in a group who can get the mission accomplished. But Jesus didn't follow his desire to be worshiped. He didn't follow a desire to be needed. He didn't follow even a desire to be loved. Jesus knew that he needed to practice solitude and silence with his Father. If Jesus needed 40 days in solitude and then another day, only one day after what we would call his first day of ministry, and then more and more throughout his ministry, if all of that's true for Jesus, doesn't it stand to reason that you and I probably need some of that as well? If it was so necessary and important for him to do that, to retreat, to be with the Father, doesn't that begin to sort of turn the wheels of our minds and help us reevaluate our understanding of what it means to be called by God? Our sort of addiction to busyness that's probably infected a lot of the way that we view and do ministry, even in a church like this one. This is not just a solution to overstimulation. This is not a new paint job on secular mindfulness. Solitude is how we find ourselves apart from the people who are around us. And it is in silence that we face who we really are inside. Our interior life becomes visible to us as we listen to the kinds of things that our anxiety repeats to us, as we catch up with sort of the the principles that our family of origin shaped, our habits, our personality, as we become aware of what we really love in life and how that love is forming us. The white noise will never make us aware of those things. We have to grit our teeth and go to the quiet place, the lonely place, the desolate place, and be alone with ourselves and God. So next week, we're gonna deal more with stillness. Today was sort of about the quiet element and just a primer on silence and solitude. Next week, we're gonna deal with stillness. What does it mean to be still? Why is that hard? What will happen if we choose to do that? Um, We're gonna try to identify several benefits of silence and solitude next week, and we'll look at one of, in my opinion, the very best stories in the Old Testament uh, that I'd be willing to bet most of us are not familiar with. But today, to end our time together today, two quick thoughts for you. The first is this, I want to help you get started, if you want to. Okay? Again, none of these practices is the point. Doing these does not score you points with God, with this church, with your elders, with deacons, with your spouse. It is not about making yourself better. These are disciplines. They are like shooting free throws in the driveway. You do these things so that when the appropriate time comes, you are able to do what you need to do. Richard Foster once said that the disciplined person is not a rigid person. The disciplined person is the person who can do the right thing at the right time for the right kind of people. This is training for you and I. This is us getting in the gym and doing a thing that maybe if we don't like it, we're committing to it, trusting and believing that it will have an effect on us. So here's how it works. Try to plan, if you can, this week, in the next seven days. This is what I'm asking you to do. Nobody's gonna check up on you. I'm just letting you know this is where you can start. Five consecutive uninterrupted minutes of solitude and silence. And you might try that today and it might get messed up. And you might try it Monday and it might get messed up. And you might try it Tuesday and it might get messed up. But keep trying. Keep plugging away. Five minutes. We're talking about maximum 35 minutes of your week. If you try to do this once every day and you fail each time, that's okay. If you can't do five minutes, do two minutes, okay? It's not about the minutes. Jesus doesn't say it really takes five minutes if you want this thing to work, okay? We're just getting started. Whatever you can do, one minute, 30 seconds, just try to intentionally plan to retreat To be alone, to be in the quiet, and to sit with that for a minute. You can pray if you want to sing, have your Bible open, that's good. But try to make it about you are who you are, God is who he is, and you are together in the quiet. Now, if possible, and some of you, your life group meets right after this, so you're not going to be able to do it this week, but you can do it for next week. If you're able to do this between now and when your life group meets, I think that would be helpful to you. I think that would make you able to start to kind of dissect the process, the experience, discuss together what was it like, was it good, was it bad, does it seem silly, did you enjoy it, did it help you, did it not. It may bring to mind people that you've known in your past who've been crazy about silence and solitude or others who've hated it. You'll have all kinds of experiences, but just try to, if you can, fit it in before you meet with your group so that you guys can discuss it together. Um, Ruth Haley Barton, just to give you sort of some encouragement here, the lady who literally wrote the book on silence and solitude, she states in chapter two of her book, that she could not get past the 10 minute mark for the entire first year that she practiced this. She just couldn't do it. She would go, they cleaned out a closet in their house, she'd go in there, she had a little wooden chair, she'd shut the door in the dark and sit. And she'd go about three minutes and then she would freak out and have to go do other stuff that she felt like she needed to do. Her kids needed her, she had emails to return, she had work to do. She was honest with herself to actually leave and go do the things she was thinking about. She didn't just sit in there and fake it for 10 minutes, which is good. But just let that be a balm to you. Let that be a soothing idea that you are not supposed to be a master of any of this. Baked into being an apprentice is that you don't know what you're doing. Great. None of us do. Let's find out together. That's the point. Okay? Life was too busy for her. She couldn't endure it. So just do what you can. Cut yourself some slack and take a step. What God's enemy wants you to believe is that you have to do a certain amount or it doesn't count. That's not true. That's a lie. Do what you can, bring that with you to your group, and talk through it. I promise you, it will be a more interesting conversation than you might expect. Here's the second thing, second thought for you. Normally when I'm done teaching, I pray right away for you guys, and I'm gonna do that today as well, like normal. But before that, we are going to be quiet together for one minute. And four or five people's heart rate just skyrocketed. Boom, 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 boom. Right, they're like, my baby's here, what about my baby? It's gonna scream, it's gonna ruin it. Okay, look, if if your baby is here and your baby cries, then that's awesome, okay? We're gonna listen to that together for one minute and none of us is gonna die. We're gonna be fine, okay? And we'll be thankful for new life together and we'll pray for you and your baby this week. That's our commitment, okay? That's the worst possible thing that could happen. If your chair falls over, your phone goes off, life goes on, let it be an example to how rare silence really is, okay? So we're gonna do that. We're gonna be quiet together. If you want to, it may help you to that same exercise I walked us through earlier when we prayed to center down Maybe you're feeling some anxiety, maybe you're feeling some weirdness, some fear, it's starting to bubble up inside of you, are people going to look at me, are they going to know? This is about us just being quiet together, this is a way that we can corporately practice this just for a minute, so just acknowledge that, let it go, okay, when it's been one minute, I will pray for us. I'm not going to leave you hanging forever, and then the band's going to come back up and we're going to sing together before we go home. So with that said, your 60 seconds of silence starts now. Father, we love you. And we're trying to trust you, God. We want to be like you. We want to grow into your image. I pray, God, that as we finish this morning and singing, that if some of us need to be quiet more, we would feel the freedom to do that. God, that you would spark an interest in us and beginning to participate in a lifestyle, a kind of life that would shape our character and our habits to be more like you. We know, God, that you're near us. We know that again and again in your word, you speak from stillness, from quiet, So I pray this week, God, that you would help us to begin to find a way to get a foothold to just create a little bit of space outside of the normal, hectic flow of our lives that we would be quiet and that we would be with you. We love you, Father. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.